Amos chapter 9 and verse 1. Amos 9 will begin at the first verse. While you're still turning there, I'll just publicly thank you for your hospitality and your kindness this weekend. It's been a great conference, and my children even said this morning, this weekend has flown by so quickly. And uh, one of my daughters in particular said, Dad, if they invite you back, say yes. So uh, it was it's nice that when they, uh, they, I mean, they don't often complain for the record, but they're not as effusive in their praise always. So it, it's a testimony to your love and to the many kindnesses that we've been shown this weekend. So we thank you in the name of our Lord for that. Amos chapter 9 and verse 1. Amos 9 and verse 1. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and He said, Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake, and break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away, and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell there mourn, all of it shall swell like the river and subside like the river of Egypt. He who builds His layers in the sky and has founded His strata in the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth, the Lord is His name. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. We'll read more as we go along, but this is enough for us to begin Uh, We take our bearings again that we're thinking of lessons for last days from the book of Amos. Because Amos is talking about last days. In his context, it's the last days of the independent northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, I phrase it that way because at this point in history, there had been a civil war and there were two kingdoms. Israel were the northern ten kingdoms, sometimes called Ephraim, kingdom was, of course, Judah and Benjamin. And there was this sad divide. And uh, centuries earlier, even before Amos's time, there was a wicked king, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the first king of this divided kingdom. And one of the first things he did was he set up a rival religion. Now, why would he do that? The Lord was pretty adamant when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt that he was making them his people. And that he didn't want them to worship other gods. I mean, the Ten Commandments begin that way, don't they? As we read them in Exodus 20 for the first time. I am the Lord thy God, and thou shalt not have other gods before me. 
nor shalt thou make any graven images. And so the Lord put that right at the top of his code for them. And yet, Moses was still up on the mount getting those commandments from God. And what was happening down below? The people were making an image, a golden calf. That's right. And even Aaron got caught up in that error and said, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt, O Israel. And they worshipped that idol and God brought tremendous judgment on them at that time. He could have wiped them out. He threatened to. But Moses, picturing our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, Moses interceded and said, blot me out of the book. Don't blot them out. Lord, if you don't take them in the land, your enemies will say, it's because the Lord brought them out of Egypt, but he couldn't finish it. He couldn't do what he promised to do. Now, I want to tell you this morning that God finishes what he starts. And the Bible says that time and time again, and I'm thankful for that. Because if he didn't finish what he started, how would I know I could ever be saved? I mean, I came to the Lord Jesus in 1980 as a boy, and the Lord saved me. I passed from death unto life the moment I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm also described in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 1, for example, as one of those who is being saved. Because salvation happens at the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If a truck, God forbid, came out of an alley and ran you over one minute after you trusted Christ, you'd be fit for heaven. You'd go absent from the body and present from the Lord, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. And yet, here I am 42 years later, if my math is correct, and the Lord's still working on me. I'm still being saved in the sense that that salvation that began in a moment when I was converted, when I went from being a sinner dead in my trespasses and sins and came to know the Lord and was born again, regenerated, given new life, made a new creature in Christ Jesus, the Lord now begins to apply that salvation in me. See, it's like getting a transplant. People that get a significant transplant, like a heart transplant, They'll sometimes say something like this. I feel like I got a whole new life. Well, you know, that's what salvation is. The Lord gives us a brand new life source within. The Holy Spirit, a person of the Trinity, actually comes to live within us as believers. And he begins writing on our minds and hearts God's law. We start to think differently. We start to be interested in things we were never interested in before. Before, we would have never thought of being up relatively early, and I'm thankful not so early as other places, relatively early here in Bramford to come hear the Word of God. Many, many Sundays, you may have lived your life, and Sunday for you was the day to sleep in, the day to eat your favorite cereal, the day to go golfing, the day to watch football on TV or whatever. Now the chief thing is you say it's the Lord's Day. I want to go out to meet with the people of the Lord. I want to go to the house of God, not a building, but the gathering of the people, the local assembly of believers. And I want to worship and remember the Lord Jesus. And I want to hear his word. And you love that. I hope you do at least. Like a baby, Peter describes it in 1 Peter 2. You want that pure milk of the word. Now, we had a few babies in my house over the years. And I noticed about them that they were very interested in milk. In fact, they were quite earnest about it. At three o'clock in the morning, 
they wouldn't lie there and say, well, <laughs> you know, I'm feeling a bit peckish, but after all, it's not really breakfast time, is it? And mom works hard. She's tired. She deserves to sleep through the night. No, my children thought no such thought in their little brains and those cute little heads they had. They would just cry for all they were worth, showing that their lungs functioned quite well, for which we were grateful. And I would nudge Naomi because she's a heavier sleeper than I. And I would say, I'm not equipped for this, darling. And uh, she would go take care of the baby. <laughs> and that's how they were. They said, I got to have my milk. <laughs> I'm not going to just lie here and pretend like nothing's wrong. I need that milk to be satisfied and to grow and to live. But we need the word of God in the same way. And we need to come and feed on the Lord. And we need the fellowship of other believers. And we need the working of the gifts that the Lord has given in the church to build one another up. And we need to use our gifts to build one another up in Christ that we may all, as Ephesians 4 pictures it, arrive at the fullness of the stature of a full-grown man. That's what the Lord has designed the church to be, in part. But, of course, uh, that process goes on for us, and it's not going to be complete until the Lord Jesus comes. And when he comes, we shall see him, for we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, as the Bible tells us in 1 John 3. And it's going to be a wonderful consummation. Now, we come back to Amos and we think about what God began here in Israel. And yet, at the time Amos is prophesying, it seems so far away from what God started. It seems, in fact, like everything is so messed up by their sin, by the way they've not sought after the Lord, by the way they've turned after other gods, by the way they've indulged in serial infidelity, both spiritually and maritally, and engaged in all kinds of immorality and cruelty and unrighteousness toward their fellow man as well. And you read through the first eight chapters of Amos, and you say, whoa, (laughs) this is such a downer. You know, this is so negative. It's depressing to think about how badly people can behave. And I look around at the world today and I say, well, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because people without the Lord are are the same. The heart of man is the same. Sin is the same. Our technology progresses and uh, names change, but people have the same fundamental need. We need to be saved from sin. We need to be saved from what we are. Not only for what we do, but for what we are. That's why we need a Savior. And the wonderful thing is, for all the negativity, for all the sin and iniquity and the bad things they were and were doing, that throughout the book, God keeps throwing in these statements. Seek me. Turn to me. Turn away from your sin. Come to me. Come back. Remember my word. I've got this man here, Amos, who wasn't even a prophet, but the need is so great. I seized this man and I called him and I revealed my word to him and said, go prophesy. And Amos said, I had to leave the sycamore trees and I had to leave the flocks and I had to come out here and I couldn't help it but preach because I have to tell you what God has said. I have to tell you that if you don't repent, you will perish. Just like the Lord Jesus said it centuries later. Now, this is the 8th century BC. So, you know, you think about it 
in probably mid-8th century B.C. It's the reign of Jeroboam, uh, the son of uh, Jeroboam. forget who his father's name was off the top of my head, but Jeroboam II is what we're calling him. And it's the middle of the 700s, so we're about seven centuries before the time of the Lord. And when our Lord walked on the earth, he said, you know, you hear about bad things that happen to people. You hear about a tower that fell on these guys in Salome. You hear about a pilot committing a massacre where he killed some Jews who were trying to offer some sacrifices and he mingled their blood with their sacrifices. You hear about these awful things that happen. Hurricanes, 9-11, you know, you name it. What's the catastrophe of the day? Natural disasters happen in the world. Man's cruelty and sin toward his fellow man also happens. You hear about these things happening. And people get excited and they say, why has God allowed this to happen? Or as some supposed preacher, unfortunately, I don't think he knew the Lord. He got up at the funerals at Columbine and said, God, where were you at Columbine? Well, that's funny. They don't want God in school normally, you know, but when something happens, they want to blame God. God, it's your fault. (laughs) And people always want to know, what's God doing when this catastrophe happens? Well, the Lord Jesus cut right to the core issue. Unless you likewise repent, unless you repent, rather, you shall likewise perish, he said. Unless you turn from your sin. You think it's bad to have a tower fall on you? You think it's bad to have somebody massacre you? That's just the beginning. What about a lost eternity in hell? Don't you realize your sin means that you deserve to die? You deserve to be separated from God. And so every one of us needs to repent. We're all in the same boat as far as guilt goes, you know? Because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's the wonderful thing about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is a comprehensive savior for everybody. That everywhere I've been in the world and have been and preached on different continents and to people in different languages and all the rest. And and we may be so far apart culturally and how we look and what we eat and all the different things. But I preach the same message the world over. You got to come to know the Lord Jesus. Because human need is the same in Kenya, in Singapore, in Malaysia, in South Korea, in Ireland, in Italy, in Connecticut. It's the same. We need a Savior. And they needed a Savior in Israel at this time too. And that's why God sent Amos. But when we get down to chapter 9, there's kind of a terminal mass of iniquity. In other words, God isn't going to let sin go on forever in this world, you know. People say, why doesn't God do something about the terrorism in the world? Why doesn't God do something about cancer? Why doesn't God do something about congestive heart failure? Or all the things, you know, most of the things that were on the prayer list this morning. Why do we have to live in a world that's so broken and so messed up? Well, the Bible says, because it's a fallen world, a world where People have turned their backs on God and not done it God's way. We've broken God's word. That's what sin is. We've rebelled against God. And that's why the world is the way it is. But God tells us he's not going to leave it that way forever. And and we're so used to living in a world that is pluralistic. In other words, a world where people believe all kinds of things. We're very accustomed to the fact that in our community today, this morning there are people meeting who would say Jesus is not God. Some of them would say they're Christians, believe it or not. 
but they would deny the deity of the Lord. Some of them, like the Muslims, would say, no, no, they call him Isa. He wasn't God. He was just a prophet, and he wasn't even the greatest of the prophets. And by the way, he didn't die on the cross. Large swaths of Islam would believe that and deny that in spite of the massive amount of historical evidence of our Lord's death on the cross. And others would say, like the Jehovah's Witness, well, he is a God. And the Mormons would say, well, you know, he is a God, but he once was like us. He's a created being and he's the brother of Satan. And all kinds of things are said. And the Hindus would say, well, we've got two million gods. What's another one? You know, we'll take Jesus as well. I mean, we're used to living in a world where people believe all these kinds of things. You know, the day's coming when that's not going to be so anymore. The day is coming when even those who disbelieve in the Lord Jesus, when those who refuse to submit to the Lord Jesus are going to be forced, compelled to acknowledge what is the absolute truth of the universe, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isaiah 45 talks about it and Philippians 2 in our New Testament quotes it. That every knee is going to bow of things in heaven. Are we surprised at that? Well, you say, of course. Angels, archangels, seraphim, cherubim, living creatures, all these wonderful beings in heaven. Of course, they'll bow to the Lord Jesus. And glorified saints, you know, the believers that have gone on before us, the believers of the Old Testament era, and the believers of our own church age that already have gone on before and they're with the Lord. Of course, they'll bow the knee. Because on earth, they were accustomed to calling Jesus Lord. And then it'll say, on earth, of those on earth. Now, that's more surprising, isn't it? But everybody on earth one day is going to bow to the Lord Jesus. But we're not talking about everybody being saved. We're talking about everybody being forced to confess, forced to agree to the fact that Jesus Christ is God and that he's the sovereign ruler over all. Because the third group in Philippians 2 is it says things under the earth. People, in their way of speaking, that we describe as in hell. People that eventually, according to Revelation 20, are going to be cast into the lake of fire. People that here refuse to honor the Lord Jesus, deny the Lord Jesus, don't want the Lord Jesus, or maybe are merely apathetic toward the Lord Jesus. They're just not interested in him. And they're going to have to bow in that day and say, well, yes, the truth was there all along and God was shouting at us through creation and shouting in our own conscience. And yes, the word of God and different Christians that came across my path and missionaries that went to other countries. And as it went out on the Internet and the TV and the radio and everywhere else, yes, it's true. Jesus is Lord, but they're not going to love the Lord Jesus. And they're not going to willingly submit to the Lord Jesus. And they're not going to want to be where the Lord Jesus is for eternity. And so the Bible ends saying, let him that is unwashed be unwashed still. Let him that is unholy be unholy still. What they've decided to be in life is confirmed for eternity. It's a solemn thing, isn't it? And when we open Amos 9 and we read verse 1 here, he says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake. Now, where is the Lord standing? Well, we presume it's by the altar in Bethel. It's by the center of the false religion that Jeroboam 
the son of Nebat, Jeroboam, one centuries before it started. Because when he divided the kingdom, he figured out we need another religion. Because if people are going to go down and worship the God of Israel, if they're going to go to Jerusalem the way the Bible says, then pretty soon they're going to go down there and they're going to say, can't we all just get along? I mean, you know, we're kind of cousins, aren't we? You guys are southern tribes and we're northern tribes and maybe our accent's a little different. You talk about, you know, hey, y'all, and we talk about the ka and the ya, the havid and whatever, and we have better pizza. But, but you know, really, we're, we're really a, one nation. We ought to get back together. And Jeroboam said, oh, no, 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 we can't have that. So what we're going to do is we're going to start our own religion. It's going to be a counterfeit. So when they have the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, it's coming up, uh, or maybe it already is. It's right around this time of year. The Feast of Sukkot, the booths, the Jews call it. When they have it, we're going to have it a month later. They've got their Aaronic priesthood. We're going to make our own priests. They have their altar. We're going to have our altar. They have sacrifices. We're going to have sacrifices. And we're going to worship this golden calf. See, we're getting back to ancient religion. We're going all the way back. Unfortunately, again, it wasn't back far enough. They went back to the wilderness, to Mount Sinai, where their forefathers sinned in turning from the true and living God and worshiping this false idol. They said, we're going to do that too. And now the Lord shows up in Amos's vision and he says, knock it all down. Now, in Isaiah 6, a contemporary prophet to this prophet Amos. Isaiah gets his call from the Lord, except he's in the true temple. And he has this vision of the true temple. And as the Lord is there in his glory, these angelic beings called seraphim that have six wings. With two they fly, with two they cover their face, with two they cover their feet. And they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth is filled with his glory. And Isaiah's response is, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, it's the language of the leper. And Isaiah wasn't literally a leper, but he was beginning his ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah was the leper king. Long story how he got to be a leper, but it was basically by not guarding the holiness of God and thinking he could do a job that God hadn't given the kings to do in the temple. Anyway, Isaiah is there in the temple, and as the Lord speaks, the pillars of the temple are shaking at the mighty sound of the holy God. It's one thing when you're in the true temple, and the pillars seem to be shaking because of the awesome power and the matchless holiness of the true and living God. But what happens when you're in a false temple and the true God shows up and he says, now I'm going to knock down the pillars. The thing that's holding your temple up, I'm going to knock down from the top to the bottom. (laughs) Well, I wonder what it would have been for a Jewish priest in the first century when the Lord Jesus was crucified outside Jerusalem. And as he was standing there in the temple, a place that had been the house of God, but they had turned in apostasy. And even when the Lord came to his own temple, they didn't recognize him and they rebuked him and and they hated what he stood for. And now he was being crucified just the way they wanted. And as they were there in the temple, as our Lord Jesus died, saying, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. God, from the top to the bottom, ripped 
that veil that was in the temple in half. Something that the scholars tell us was very thick, maybe as thick as a man's hand. Not something that human agency could do. And it was from the top to the bottom. It was God, as Hebrews would later explain, opening things up and saying, now there's a true and living way. Now you can come right into the presence of God. Because the Lord Jesus has taken away that thing that separated us, sin. And the Lord Jesus has made a way to be perfectly righteous in God's sight, to be justified as Romans and Galatians calls it, declared righteous in God's sight. And you can be brought all the way in. You can come boldly, in other words, confidently, knowing you have every right to be there by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the sacrifice he offered, and that it was ratified by God by raising him from the dead. It spelled, of course, the end of the temple system. Because now they didn't need that physical temple in Jerusalem. Now the Lord Jesus had opened the way into heaven. And now the New Testament would speak about local assemblies of believers as temples in 1 Corinthians 3. Collectively, when believers meet together in the name of the Lord Jesus, they are called the temple of God. What we're doing is very sacred and holy, brothers and sisters. And 1 Corinthians 6, a few chapters later, goes on to define even the believer's body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So things that before were not necessarily sacred are now set apart for God and His glory, even our very bodies. That how we live is meant to be, as Romans 12 will explain it, a living sacrifice. That we're to live for the glory of God. Now, here in Amos, God says, I'm going to take down this false religion. It's true that, in a sense, you can read about the history in 2 Kings chapter 16 about how this was going to be destroyed when the Assyrians invaded. But there's coming a day, you know, when God's going to wipe out all the false religion. When the Lord Jesus comes back to rule and reign on the earth, which again is after the rapture of the church. We're not looking for the Lord to come to earth first. We're looking for the Lord to come in the air to call his church to be with himself. But then the Lord's going to take up Israel again. And the Lord's going to deal with the nations in connection with Israel. And by the end of that seven-year period that the Bible speaks about, and Daniel 9 being one of the great passages on, by the end of that period, there's going to be a remnant of Israel that's ready to cry out to God to save them. Unfortunately, there are going to be a lot of other Israelites that are going to perish in their sin. There's always a choice to be made. Do I believe God or do I reject Him? Now, Here the Lord talks about this judgment coming and he says, I will slay the last of them with the sword, verse 1. He who flees from them shall not get away and he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. So here comes the enemy with their swords. Think of the Capital One commercials, you know, with all the the barbarians coming down the road, waving their swords and their axes and whatnot. Here come the Assyrians. Now, they're really nasty guys. They're the Nazis of the ancient world, okay? They don't just kill you. They do it slow and cruelly, okay? They're very, very bad dudes. Uh, You happen to get away from them. You're really fast. You know, you ran on the North Brantford track team or whatever. And you are running out of Samaria and you're getting away. And the Lord says, okay, you escape the guy with the sword, but you're not going to be delivered. Though they dig into hell, Sheol is the word here. So we think of hell as the place of unbelievers who die, who are separated from the Lord. Uh, Sheol in the Old Testament is a wider concept 
the abode, it's where people go when they die. And yes, there's a place of torment for those who don't know the Lord, but there's also Abraham's bosom for those who do know the Lord. But the the figure of speech here in verse 2 is, even if you can go to some other dimension and hide, like they thought of Sheol in the center of the earth, even if you can go down there, you can't hide from God there. From there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, so they're going up to the heights. From there, I'll bring them down. And though they hide themselves on top of Carmel. Now, that's the famous mountain where Elijah stood up to the prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth, right? Well, it has a lot of caves and a lot of places to hide. You can't hide there, okay? Because I will search and take them, though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea. Ooh. That's really obscure, isn't it? They didn't have submarines yet. But if you can go down to the bottom of the sea, from there I'll command the serpent. In other parts of the Bible, he's called Leviathan. And I'll command him to bite them, though they go into captivity before their enemies. So they take the noble way of waving the white flag, you know? They put up a pair of their jockey shorts on a stick or whatever and wave it and say, I surrender, I'm not fighting. Well, even if you go into captivity... From there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. Now that's a solemn thing, isn't it? Keep something here in Amos 9, and go with me a moment back to Psalm 139. Because Psalm 139 uses parallel language, but in a completely different way. We'll see what I mean in a moment. Psalm 139. The 139th Psalm, and this is a great psalm of the three omnis. It's going to speak about the Lord's omniscience, that he knows everything. It's going to speak about his omnipresence, that he is present everywhere in his universe. And it's going to speak about his omnipotence, that he can do anything. He's all-powerful. And he starts in Psalm 139, verse 1. 139, verse 1. O Lord, you have searched and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Now that's a beautiful picture. David's a believer. And he's talking about the Lord's omniscience. He knows everything. Lord, personally, you know everything all about me. You're in front of me before I get to tomorrow. The Lord's already there. You're behind me. You know my past. Even if we think geographically, there's no area where God isn't surrounding his own, isn't protecting us. We use the expression, I got your back. Or soldiers speak about, watch my six, you know, take care of where I can't see. Well, God's behind you, taking care of you, or he's in front of you. And the image in verse 5, you've laid your hand upon me. So if he's in front of you and behind you, and he's put his hand on you, that's tremendous security. It kind of reminds us of the good shepherd talking in John chapter 10 about no man being able to pluck us out of the father's hand. And no one being able to pluck us out of the son's hand either. But that's another sermon we press on. He says, such knowledge, verse 6, is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, look at verse 7. 
where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? He's going to talk about God's omnipresence. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, same word, Sheol. If I make my bed in the abode of the dead, Sheol. Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He goes on to describe that. But look at this. David is saying, you know, I can't go any place where the Lord isn't. And that's tremendous. Because even if I fall into some kind of sin, the Lord will pursue me and he'll bring me back. If I'm a straying sheep, he's the good shepherd that leads the 90 and 9 and goes and gets that one wandering sheep and brings me back on his shoulders. The Lord is there to protect me. The Lord cares about me. The Lord wants to hold me. The Lord wants to grant me security. The Lord wants to guide me and give me knowledge. And I can't be anywhere. You can go to the heights. You can go to the depths. He's going to use other metaphors in the psalm that we don't have time to read that talk about the east and the west. I mean, whichever direction you can think of, whichever dimension you can think of, the Lord's there. And the whole point of Psalm 139 for the believer, he's for us. Yes, his eyes are always upon us, but his eyes are on us for good. Now contrast that with what Amos has been saying back in Amos chapter 9. That the Lord explicitly says to them there, in verse 4, at the last part of the verse, I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. See, it's very different, isn't it? The Lord is coming. Now, as a believer, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and I say the Lord is coming, what do you say? You maybe use the language of 1 Corinthians 16. Maranatha, even so, come Lord Jesus. You say the Lord's coming, good. When by His grace I shall look on His face, that will be glory, be glory for me. I've known the Lord, and I've seen him as through a glass darkly. It's like looking in one of those ancient mirrors that isn't the nice shiny ones we have today that more or less show you what you look like. But these were the ancient ones there that were like polished bronze or polished copper. So you could see your image, but it wasn't quite as clear, especially if it got tarnished, you know? And you've seen the Lord. You've read his word and the Lord has shown himself to you in the scriptures. And as you've prayed, and as you've lived life on this earth, you've known something of the Lord, and you've grown in the Lord. But it's going to be really different when the Lord comes and you see Him, right? And you're going to say, that's wonderful. The Lord is going to come again and receive us to Himself, that where He is, there we may be also. That's what He said in John 14. But if you're an unbeliever, what is it? Well, Revelation 6 paints the picture. People are going to call on the mountains and the hills to fall on them. And we sang that in the love of God this morning. Great hymn. My son was looking at that hymn in the Lord's Supper, actually. And uh, when they put it up there in the music, pointing like, you know, time and time again, Micah's learning the Holy Spirit can guide the hearts of the brothers to give what he wants the people to have. And I'm sure he's doing that in the sisters' silent worship as well. But it's very different anticipating what the Lord's going to do as a believer versus being an unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever, there's no security. There's no safety. There's no peace, my God, to the wicked. Okay? But if you're a believer, 
It's safe and secure from all alarms, as the hymn writer said. That's what we have, because we know the Lord, and the Lord is for us. Now, he's an awesome God. In verses 5 and 6, he speaks about his great creatorial power. For sake of time, I'm just going to go ahead to verse 7, Amos 9, 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia to me, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Now, uh, this is not necessarily modern Abyssinia, the modern nation we know as Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa. It's a bit of a larger territory, may include that, but it also goes up into what in the Bible times was called Nubia, which we call today South Sudan and Sudan. But it was kind of like saying out in the boondocks, you know? Or, I'm going to Timbuktu. Now, when you say, I'm going to Timbuktu, do you literally mean you're going to Northwest Africa? No, it's a figure of speech. You're saying, I'm going far away for Bramford, where they wouldn't know a good piece of pizza if it hit them in the head, right? Like, it's very far away. And imagine, he's saying to these people, who it's obvious all through the book, they're thinking, well, we're Israel. God's not going to judge us. I mean, we got the Bible. We've got the promises. We've got the covenants. Except salvation in any dispensation has never been automatic pilot. It's never been superficial knowledge of the truth that saves, okay? There are a lot of people that know there's one true God. They know he's triune. They know Jesus is God. They even believe in judgment. They're not saved. Who am I speaking about? Demons, for one thing. Every time the demons met the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry, they said, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Have you come to torment us before the time? Imagine that. Somebody gave the demons Dwight Pentecost things to come. Or maybe it was a Schofield study Bible. I don't know. But they were dispensational premillennial demons. They believed in a future judgment. They knew prophecy. James says, you believe in one God, you do well. The demons even believe and tremble. Now, not just demons, but there are human beings that know the gospel letter perfect, but they're not saved because they've never personally humbled themselves before God and repented, said, I don't want to be a sinner anymore. I don't want sin. I don't want to die in my sins. I don't want to live for this world alone. I want you, Lord. I want life. Life is knowing you. I want that abundant life, which comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to be with you for all eternity. He says, don't be standing on your national pride and your descendancy and your ethnicity and what family you come from. You're like Ethiopia to me. You might as well be some strange foreign country way off, O children of Israel. Uh, Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? Well, guess what? I did that for other people too. I brought the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kir. And nobody was saying they were good believers. You know, God moves the nations around and God providentially blesses people and all people receive the blessing of God to some degree. In Acts 17, Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being. He's not far from every one of us, but we're not all saved. We're not all children of God. You have to personally receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's telling them that don't camp out on your privileges. Verse 8, Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. So the ten tribes, at this point in history, God's calling them, not my people, he's calling them the sinful kingdom. And he's saying, I'm going to destroy them. But, here comes the grace, you ready for it? Yet, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, he says in verse 8, says the Lord. 
So there's a remnant. And for the sixth time, I believe it is, he refers to Jacob in this book. He emphasizes their weakness. Yes, I know how wayward you've been. Yes, I know prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Yes, I know what mischief you're able to get up to. But my plans are still on schedule. And I'm not going to destroy that remnant, that little group. They may be numerically very small, that subset of this nation that is looking to the Lord. I'm going to save that remnant. For surely I will command and will sift the house of Israel among all nations as grain is sifted in a sieve, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. Now, God makes distinction. We, we know it from our Lord telling in the parables, don't we? For instance, the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13. God is going to distinguish between the wicked and the righteous. And what differentiates someone who's wicked from someone who's righteous is what do they do with the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you're among the righteous and you're not going to be lost. And when the Lord comes... You're going to go with him. You're going to be saved. And that's going to be true of the tribulation saints as well. And they're going to be gathered together into the kingdom of the Lord. But the wicked are going to be judged. So even here, God's talking about making a distinction in the nation. Verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. Well, we've heard that before, right? Judgment's not going to come. That guy standing out on 42nd Street with a sandwich board saying, you know, the Lord is coming or people yelling, repent, the Lord is coming, the end is near. People laugh at that, right? That's not going to happen. That's not going to, well, someday it is going to happen. Someday the Lord is going to come. Someday the day of grace for this world will be over. And all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Isn't that a sad expression? Here's my people. They could have all benefited from that. They could have all been saved. But some of my people never wanted to be one of my persons, never wanted to be part of that group, never believed by faith. And judgment's going to overtake them. But look at the grace, how this book that's been so full of judgment ends. Verse 11. On that day... I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Now, he closes the book. I'll comment on those verses in a moment, but just look ahead to verses 13 through 15. He talks about this tremendous blessing of the earth that it's going to be great fecundity. In other words, the fertility of the earth is going to be on display. When the Lord comes back to rule and reign in the millennium, the desert will blossom, Isaiah says. And this passage in Amos is like unto it, that people aren't going to be able to keep up with the great crops that are growing. He's spoken a number of times in the book about famine. This won't be famine. This will be blessing. And he says, verse 14, I'll bring back the captives of my people Israel and they'll build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They'll also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I'll plant them in their land and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I'm give, I've given them, says the Lord your God. So God's last word in the book is, yes, judgment's coming. In the near future, Assyria is coming and taking away the 10 tribes into captivity. But that's not the end. Because eventually, 
I'm going to regather the remnant and I'm going to bring people to my land. I'm going to regather Israel and they're going to enjoy all the prosperity and blessing that I told them. And they're not going to be uprooted. No more exile, no more dispersion, no Jewish diaspora of the future. That's a wonderful picture, isn't it? But this is better. I'll go back to verse 11. On that day, I'll raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen down and repair its damages, and I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Now, this is quoted in the New Testament in Acts 15. Because the church in its early days was having a problem. It was a problem with people of different ethnic groups, okay? You had Jews and Gentiles. That's the only distinction God really recognizes as far as ethnicity. Everything else is a subset of that. But Jews and Gentiles. Now the Jews, of course, had been God's people. They had the oracles of God, the scriptures. They had the covenants. They had the promises. The Gentiles, no, they didn't have any of that. They were without Christ, Ephesians 2 says, and it goes on to say they were without God in the world. And Jews, as you know from the Gospels and from Philippians 3, that they were habituated, they were accustomed to calling the Gentiles dogs. They thought the Gentiles were really nasty people. I mean, they're the sinners that are just beyond God's ability to save. And then the church age began. And the Lord sent his Holy Spirit and he made one body composed of Jew and Gentile. And he said, now whoever you are, doesn't matter if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile, salvation is in Christ. And you're one body in Christ. And it took a number of years for the church really to grasp that. And some people said, well, no, okay, we'll let the Gentiles come along to the meeting, but they've got to become Jews first. You know, they've got to adopt the circumcision and the Jewish food laws and things like that. And they had this big meeting with the apostles and the elders, and they said no. And one of the things James stood up and said, who was the half-brother of the Lord, you know, it says in the prophets, and he quotes these verses from Amos, that God's going to bring in the Gentiles. And he says, how can we exclude the Gentiles, therefore? Now, beware, because some Bible students get all confused about Israel and the church. And they think that when Israel rejected the Lord Jesus and crucified him, that's it for Israel. God cut Israel off. There's nothing more about Israel. Now the church is new Israel. We've replaced Israel. The Bible does not teach that. In fact, over and over again, Old and New Testament, the Bible speaks about the future for Israel. And this scripture that James uses in Acts 15 isn't saying, well, now this is showing us that the Gentiles have now come in and replaced Israel. No, nothing of the sort. It's showing us, see, this has been God's plan all the way along to bless Israel, yes, but through Israel to bring in the Gentiles. And that's going to happen as well, not just in this church age where thankfully it's happening. In fact, probably worldwide, the church almost certainly is majority Gentilic. Most of us who are believers are Gentiles, but God's still saving Jews, praise be his name. But in that future millennium, Zechariah 2 says many nations will be added to the Lord. So this has always been the heart of God to bring many nations through Israel. That this is what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12. I'll make of you a great nation and you will bless, your seed will bless many nations, he went on to say. 
So thanks be to God, the book truly ends on a high note, a high note that encompasses this church age. Judgment, yes, and judgment's coming for our world too. But thank God there's a remnant according to grace that the Lord is still saving people and that there's still time. And that's why we preach and say to people, repent, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, get right with the Lord while there's time and the Lord is saving people. Thank you for listening. I'll turn it over to the brethren for your prayer time.